For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, the theme of humility, it's pretty pervasive throughout the book of Proverbs. The book never stops begging us to keep learning. It begs the question, how can we grow in wisdom unless we're teachable? How can we change unless we're open to change? And so what is humility? Well, humility carries this idea of lowering oneself, of making oneself small. In the book of Proverbs, we see humility as the beginning of wisdom. We, we read this at the beginning of this series, Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, when, when we see God for who he is, when we see God as uh, how big he is, it, it puts ourselves into perspective, doesn't it? In comparison to God, we are but very small creatures. So when we acknowledge that we are very small and limited in our understanding, we can begin to understand uh, how and recognize how big God is and that how God is the source of all truth. And then only are we able to begin to gain understanding. Now, I say that because this morning we're going to study a passage of scripture that has some pretty remarkable truths in it. And if we take these truths to heart, we'll not only gain a, a tremendous amount of understanding, but the, these truths have the ability to help us to transform our lives as well in the way we live. And I say that because we tend to want to study big things, right? Uh, as a pastor, I get invitations uh, in the mail all the time for all kinds of uh, conferences, church conferences and stuff like that, where they want to bring bring in the big pastors of the big churches, right, uh, to, to really kind of learn from. We, we want to learn from the big dogs, the big guns. But it's true of any profession, isn't it? They, they contact the big-name speakers uh, of their profession. Leadership conferences spend millions of dollars just to get a big-name speaker. And we, at times, I think humans were, human beings were impressed with big to the extent and to the fault that we discredit the small. And I bring this up because the subject of, the, the subject of humility here, because uh, for us to gain understanding today, for us to grow in wisdom as we study the scripture text this morning, we're going, it's, it's going to require us to humble ourselves because it's going to require us to consider some small things. You see, towards the end of the book of Proverbs, we have sections uh, in this book that are not actually from uh, addressed as being written from Solomon. As in chapter 30, if you have your Bible, you can open up to chapter 30 uh, of the book of Proverbs this morning. And in chapter 30, uh, we are told that these are the sayings of Agor. And Agor, in verses 24 through 28, of chapter 30, he says this. He says, Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Four things are small, but they're extremely wise. Verse 25, Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Uh, hyrexes are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. 
Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it's found in the king's palaces. So here he says there are four things that are extremely small, but they can teach us a lot. Uh, They're extremely wise. Let's start with this first one, the ants. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Now, the ant works today for tomorrow's food, right? Uh, To put it another way, the ant knows what time it is. Uh, Agor is saying here that ants are little creatures, but they are extremely smart. Because this summer, while we're at the pool, kicking back or uh, enjoying a picnic in the park, the ant is thinking about one thing, winter. And, And... While we're just enjoying ourselves, uh, the ant is collecting food for the winter. Now, there are a lot of one-dimensional people in this world. Some some folks live in the past, right? Uh, They're nostalgic. They believe that their best days are behind them. They're the kind of people who, uh, you know, enjoy to take slides uh, uh, or pictures and, and put it into a slideshow. And when they get back home, you know, they just watch those slides, uh, that slideshow over and over and over again. Uh, they enjoy the picture perhaps a little more than the journey. Uh, they're the sort of people who drive through life looking in the rear view mirror. But then there are people who live in the present. Their favorite Bible verse is now is the accepted time, right? Uh, and they live for today as though they're is no tomorrow. And then there are folks who live in the future. Their song is borrowed uh, from uh, the play and the movie Annie, right? Tomorrow. You remember uh, back to the Exodus in, in the book of Exodus when um, God sent all the plagues uh, onto uh, to Pharaoh and, and, and everyone there in Egypt. And Moses when it came to the frogs, the, the plague of frogs, you know, Moses walks up to Pharaoh and he says, now, just let me know when you want me to get rid of these. You, you say it and I will make it happen. You, you remember Pharaoh's response? Pharaoh says, come back tomorrow. I remember when I read that for the first time, I'm like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Like, these things are that stinking annoying. They're driving everyone Uh, insane, this whole plague uh, of frogs. Here's Moses who can do something about it. He says, just say when. And Pharaoh says, come back tomorrow. There are people like that. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you are someone like that. You know, after I'm married or after I graduate or after I retire, then I'll be able to really do something with my life. The problem is that they never survive winter. Because see, for some of us, winter may be very personal. I can't imagine what it would be for you. Perhaps it's a, perhaps it's a disease that you thought belonged to other people that now becomes part of your life or part of the life of someone that you love very deeply. Perhaps it's a job that turns sour and all your dreams are dashed. Perhaps it's children you brought into this world with this hope and expectation only to find that they've turned their back on you as they've gotten older and everything you value. You know, one thing is for certain is that for all of us, winter is coming. 
winter's coming. In uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's interpretation of the gospel story uh, as it might have played out in an alternative reality in this place called Narnia, it's always winter at the beginning. It's always winter until... Aslan, the, the great lion who's the, the Christ, Jesus Christ figure uh, in the story, enters. And when he enters in, the death of winter leaves. See, one thing we need to understand about wisdom that I said is that if, if you want to be wise, you have to pursue it. That life rewards action. It's only when we pursue Christ that we gain understanding. Yes, if we lack wisdom, we should pray for wisdom. That's what James says, right? But there's no magical pill uh, that we can wake up one day and all of a sudden you have all the answers and you can speak uh, every language known to man, right? It's, it's like, you know, when I was in high school and I, I just kind of go in and to school and I'd sit down and they'd have some pop quiz and I'm like, I didn't study for it, right? And I'm like, all right, James says to pray for wisdom. Like it would be ridiculous for me to think I'm going to, to, to like ace this pop quiz that I didn't study for because I prayed for wisdom. No, the prayer of wisdom is a prayer to be diligent in our pursuit of Christ. It's a prayer that says each day I'm going to commit to the Lord that today is a day in which I will faithfully pursue you, Jesus. And just by praying, you've already done some part of pursuing Christ for that day, right? You see, when we set aside time to be in his presence, when we open his word, we seek to understand our creator and his love for us, we are preparing ourselves for winter. It's why it's so important to be diligent in those disciplines. Because listen, what you bring into winter is all you have. And let me just kind of pause and, and give you a word of caution that when winter comes, when, when tragedy strikes, that is the worst time for you to decide what you believe about Jesus Christ. My encouragement to you would be spend time pursuing Christ now. Decide for yourself today. And in the days to come, this is what I believe about Jesus Christ because that is what you will have to take with you when winter comes, when tragedy hits. Because what you bring into winter is all you have. Now this proverb, it's not saying that we should live in fear, right? But that we should always be preparing for winter, always pursuing Christ. Ants would make great Boy Scouts, right? They're always prepared they're aware of the time. Ants always know that summer is coming too. They know that. It's not all winter for them. It's not all doom and gloom. They know summer is coming. They're aware of that. Winter doesn't last forever. Winter will soon pass, but you must prepare yourself for its coming. Though creatures of little size and strength, they can make us wise if we will learn from them. Well, then the next animal that uh, Agor talks about is small in nature, but extremely wise that we can learn from today is the hyrex. Now, hyrexes are creatures, uh, he says, of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. 
a hyrex or the rock badger, not to be confused with the honey badger because the honey badger don't care, right? But the rock badger uh, is a little bit larger than a prairie dog. All right, and the hyrex, it's gray, the color of the rock. And as long as the hyrex, this rock badger, uh, is sunning itself on the rock, it's almost impossible to see. And when a predator comes to attack, this animal will run into the hole, into the crag of the rock. And so if a vulture or an eagle wants to swoop down uh, to get this hyrex, it has to knock down a mountain to get at it. You see, one thing about the hyrex is that they know where their security lies. The hyrex is safe when it stays near the cleft of the rocks. If a hyrex goes, uh, decides to go off to the prairie and kind of ventures away from the rock, then it's vulnerable. It doesn't matter how courageous it is. It doesn't matter whether or not it's been taking bodybuilding lessons at the local zoo. The most courageous hyrex falls victim to the smallest wolf and lion when it wanders away from the rock. When it wanders away from the rock, that hyrex is dead meat. You know, several summers ago, I was with my extended family in Ocean City, Maryland. While we were there, we uh, decided one evening we're, we're going to go out on the boardwalk and uh, go out on the boardwalk in the evening. And so we're out there, and, and my one nephew, uh, Carson, he's kind of up there, kind of clowning around like he likes to. He starts doing all these dance moves. You know, the dab, like when the, the dab was like the big thing. He's doing that. And my personal favorite, the, the Ray Lewis squirrel dance, right? Like, you know, we, we do all those. And, uh, and so we're just watching him do all this dancing. All of a sudden, my, my, my brother says, where's Camden? His brother, right? Now, now uh, Camden, my, my nephew, uh, has autism. And what happened was he spotted the tram car and he's fascinated with everything that resembles closely to a train. And so he begins to, to follow this tram uh, and we were unaware of it until all of a sudden we realize he's not there. You ever experienced that as a parent or someone of a, a loved one and you realize they're missing and you get you just this deep sinking, uh, terrible feeling down in the pit of your stomach well, our family took off in every direction. Thankfully, we found him safe and sound. But he had walked away from the security of his parents and family. It still makes me sick thinking about it. But one of the most famous stories Jesus told was that of the prodigal son. We also know that uh, it might be a, a better name for the story called the waiting father, right? Because if you're a parent, you know how how difficult that could be, that time, that in-between time. And the prodigal son, he didn't just wander off, he deliberately walked away from his father's protection and guidance. He would get himself far from home and from the protection of the father that loved him so much. And the father must have just been miserable, just like our family was when Camden wandered off without our knowledge. It wasn't too long until the prodigal began to feel the pressure and the danger of leaving his father's safe and prosperous home. And in the end, he was totally destitute. And so at that point, he wised up, right? He became like the hyrex. He realized the only safe place was in the rock of his father's protection. So he headed home and he welcomed his father with open arms. See, two things we can learn from the hyrex. First is this, that the hyrex has sense enough to know his weaknesses. And second, he has the sense enough to know his strength. And apart from Christ, we are vulnerable 
We're vulnerable. But knowing Christ, having him as our rock, knowing that he is the source of our power, we're made strong and we're able to have the victory. See, if you have the wisdom of the hyrax, the rock badger, you know where your security lies. It lies in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And without that, the hyrax, you have no security, security at all. So Agor says, learn something from the ant. The ant knows what time it is. Learn something from the hyrax. The hyrax, hyrax knows where to find his security. And then Agor says, locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. Now, a locust or a grasshopper by itself, it isn't a particularly formidable creature, right? I mean, uh, if you see it in the kitchen and it jumps, it, you know, it might startle you, um, but it's, it's not a, a, a great threat, right? That is at least until it joins other grasshoppers, right? Because when you think of like locusts, what comes to mind? Yeah, right, right? A plague of locusts. What, what a locust or a grasshopper can do alone, can't, cannot do alone, it can do in community with others. You see, the wisdom that we learn from the grasshopper is that there is strength in numbers. You see, the locusts teach us that there is strength when we work together. Back at the turn of the century, there was a... a a plague of locusts in the plains of the United States. And in a matter of a few days, a swarm of locusts swept across the states of Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas. In less than a week, they did over $500 million worth of damage in the currency of that time. You see, locusts, they don't have a king that organizes them. They, they don't have a draft board to call them into ranks. They just instinctively, they know. We have to be in community with other locusts. And when that occurs, they're able to topple kingdoms. And so the lesson here is that the wisdom of the locusts is the wisdom that tells us we must have community. It's a theme throughout the Bible. The Old Testament speaks of the covenant people of God. The New Testament speaks about the church. And what it tells us is that while we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we cannot have an individualized faith. And that's hard for Americans to understand or grasp or even desire. But we can't have this individualized faith. You cannot do Christianity alone. You've been given a family, brothers and sisters in Christ. I read a story about a man who went to an asylum for the criminally insane and he was a bit to surprise that there were only three guards to take care of a hundred inmates. So he said to one of the guards, he said, aren't you afraid that the inmates will unite and uh, overthrow you and escape? To which the guard said, lunatics never unite. Well, lunatics never unite, but locusts do. And Agor, this writer here in chapter 30 of the book of Psalms says, as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, you would be wise to not do life outside of the community of believers. You see, when Jesus sent his disciples out, he sent them out two by two. You live your life by yourself, you'll fall into the perils of things that you wouldn't have fallen into if you had surrounded yourself by other people with a common commitment and a common cause. 
The Apostle Paul, I think, is a great example of this. We meet, uh, he, he meets Jesus on this road to Damascus, and his life uh, was never, ever the same. He begins preaching uh, this gospel in Damascus, but after a while, it doesn't take long before the Jews begin to plot his death. And so some of the believers there in Damascus, they, they help him escape the city by lowering him in this large basket through a hole in the city wall. When he arrives, when he escapes there, he, he heads to Jerusalem. And he tries to meet with the believers there in Jerusalem. This is where uh, Christianity begins, right? The day of Pentecost in, in Jerusalem, the disciples were to stay there and, and it spreads through there. So, so this is like home base, for Christ followers. The apostle uh, Peter is there. James is there. And he tries to meet with these believers. But here's the problem. You see, before he encountered Christ, he was persecuting Christians. He went by the name of Saul. He was rounding Christians up and he was killing them. And so when they get word that this guy is coming, they want nothing to do with him. They don't believe he's telling the truth. So how in the world did Paul become the most influential church planter in history and end up writing the vast majority of the New Testament if the believers in Jerusalem, if, if Peter, kind of the leader of the, the, the disciples at the time, won't even give him the time of day? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because he had a friend named Barnabas. See, Barnabas came to Paul's defense. He sticks his neck out there for him. And the fact, the fact is, if you've been in church for any amount of time, good chances are you know something about the Apostle Paul. You've heard about the Apostle Paul, but you probably haven't heard as much about Barnabas. But if it wasn't for Barnabas, you probably wouldn't hear about the Apostle Paul. I mean, think about this. What would have happened if Barnabas would have stayed quiet, if Paul wouldn't have had a friend in Barnabas, would Paul have been able to plan all those churches that he did? Probably. I mean, Jesus came to him and said, here's your mission, right? I want you to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He, he, he probably, I'm thinking God would have found another way. But God chose to use other believers in the life of Paul to help come alongside Paul as he lived out this calling that God had for his life. And when you read the story of Paul and his missionary journeys, you see he always brought someone along, whether it was Luke or Timothy or Silas. You see in the New Testament, the Bible is filled with community. And if you don't know where your power is, if you don't understand that other Christians need you and you need other Christians you're going to have a hard time living out this life that God has called you to live out. If you allow yourself to be isolated, you're a sitting duck for the enemy, for Satan. It's why the Bible talks so much about church as a family. It's why he commands us to meet regularly as we're doing here. And the importance of getting connected in, into groups to be known and to know others. The danger of being isolated uh, is, is very real. But let's talk about the positive of this, right? We already talked about the, the negative side of not having community, but the positive side is that together, 
were unstoppable. If each member in this church would see themselves as a critical part of this church family, if each member would see themselves as valuable to the service of our king and would unite around this common mission, this revolution of loving God and loving our neighbor, you will see radical transformation in this community. And if the churches, if churches that have differences were willing to come together and work together with the things that they agree on, you would see a mighty movement of God that we probably haven't seen since the Great Awakening. You see, locusts have no king to unite them, but we do. Our family, this, the, the church is united around our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our king, and when we rally around our king, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail. You see, the fool lets themselves get picked off because they think and believe they can do it all on their own. See, four things on earth are small, yet they're extremely wise. From the ant, we know the times. From the hyrex, we know where our security comes from. From the locust, we know we need community. And finally, verse 28, it says, a lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it's found in the king's palaces. Now, in this region of the country, we don't really see lizards, you know, uh, all over the place. Um, but ha have you ever gone and visited a place that, that does, right? I I've been to Orlando many times. One time I was at a church in Orlando. I sat down in the auditorium. They had these pew benches, not like these individual seats here. It's just this long padded bench. And I look over and there's this beady-eyed, creepy little I don't even know, gecko, lizard, I, I couldn't tell you the difference there. It's just creepy, right? It's just staring at you, this little thing, out his neck, you know, like just expanding. And uh, I'm like, wow, that's, that's interesting, you know, it's creepy. Uh, I've seen lizards that are much, much larger from spending time in, in Haiti. Uh, and, uh, and it reminds me, uh, it reminds us of two things about lizards, and first is that you can catch them with your hands, right? I'm not sure you would want to. I'm guessing for most of you, it would make your skin crawl. But second, they show up in some amazing places. This little guy just wanted to come to church. I'm like, hey, who am I to judge, right? Just stay away from me. They show up in some amazing places. And Agor says they're found in king's palaces, you see, lizards teach us the incongruity of God's amazing grace. These ugly little creatures, they, they find themselves in palaces. About six years ago, the area I was ministering in, their, their, uh, our local Little League team, the Redland Little League team, found themselves playing in the Little League World Series championship game. They made it all the way down uh, to one of two teams left. And uh, they had this hashtag that intrigued me. Their hashtag, it became the theme for their team and it became the theme for our community was hashtag, why not us? Why not us? Because it became apparent as the media covered them 
that this rural community between Harrisburg and York, the media that covered them, they didn't know what to call this team. And they found these, these kids. I mean, they were kids. They found themselves elevated to the status of fame and honor. And I can't help but think that that's what grace does. Grace takes the no-name people of this world and it gives them a name. And it places them in a seat of honor at the king's palace. Grace takes the orphan and adopts them and brings them into a family and gives them a new name. And that child receives all the rights and all the privileges of being part of that family. You see, when the prodigal returned to the father, he was different. He'd been humbled. But he realized he was not all that he had thought he was. But he still got it wrong. Because, you see, this time when he returned... The first time when he left, he thought too highly of himself. This time he believed he was worthless. And he had hoped his plan was to just go back, throw himself at the mercy of the father and ask for his father to bring him on as one of his hired uh, attendants. In other words, this son was going to his father and saying, I will make restitution. Help me to, to, to be able to earn your love back. But the father didn't do that. Instead, the father grabbed the ring and put on his finger and the sandals and the father's robe and he threw it over his son and he threw a big party. You see, culture would have said that that son is dead to the father. There's no way this father would take him back as disgraceful as the son had been to him. Yet it's grace. It's God's amazing grace that enables people such as ourselves who've sinned against God, who've who've entangled ourselves in in, in filthy things to be brought into the king's palace and thrown a party. It's Christ's death on the cross that paid the penalty for our sin that allows us to be brought back into Christ's family, back into his kingdom, and to sit at his table. The first step of receiving his free gift of grace is is for you to acknowledge that you are in fact in need of his grace. That you have sinned and that you need a savior to rescue you. You need the redemptive work of Christ shed blood to come over you to make you clean. And my hope and my prayer and my encouragement to you is this, that you've never made Jesus Lord and savior of your life. That you do that today. I know Virgil will be back at the fork and four table. Uh, Some of the elders are here. I'd love to begin a conversation with you. I'll be here a little afterwards. But don't delay. Pursue wisdom. Take action now before winter comes. Before tragedy strikes. Do yourself a favor and begin to pursue wisdom. Begin to pursue Christ. Seek the answers that you have questions about. Seek it out. My hope and my prayer is that you can find this wisdom that's talked about in this book of Proverbs. That you have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you have a community of others that you're able to do life with. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for not just the book of Proverbs and the wisdom that we have, but Lord, 
Um, we thank you for the entire scripture, that your word that you've breathed out to us, that you haven't just left us on our own to figure this thing out, Lord, but that you promise that when we seek you, Lord, that we will understand your ways and your purpose for us. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he died in our place. It took the punishment that we deserve that we may sit at your table. That we may walk with you for all eternity. Lord, we look forward to that day. Until then, we pray, Lord, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you, Lord. We ask all this in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.